the new or kid on the block. This week, we're riding on the second wave, but despite having about a thousand more cases than the last shutdown, we're keeping right on keeping on. Plus, for the 10th year in a row, we're ready to end homelessness this year. Maybe it'll actually happen. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 102. We've crested that 100 hill and we're going to keep on going. This is my life now and it's all I have to look forward to every week because the world is in a cataclysmic shutdown. But the bright sunshine of hope every week is the rapid fire segment. As Strathcona County crests 25 active cases of COVID-19, their mandatory mask bylaw kicked into effect this week. The bylaw will require a face covering in all indoor public spaces and public vehicles until November 17th or until it's repealed. The increase in cases has left County Mayor Rod Frank perplexed, however, saying in a statement, quote, These cases must have come from Edmonton. They're obviously a bunch of plague demons over there, but I just can't fathom how they got here. County residents don't use Edmonton roads, spaces, public facilities. That's why we don't pay taxes there. We're entirely self-sufficient on our refinery row revenues. So how did the cases get in? At press time, the mayor could be seen in his thinking space, the top floor of the double-decker commuter bus that definitely stays in the county. With Halloween just around the corner, many families are concerned about what the holiday will look like and the safety of kids going door-to-door collecting treats. Thankfully, city officials have stepped up to the plate and this week released a toolkit of city-approved contactless tricks and or treats to distribute. Said interim city manager Adam Lachlan, there are plenty of no-contact options that the city has battle-tested in the past, so we know handing these out is definitely effective. Some of the items on the list that the city suggests handing out, a photo radar ticket, a set of speed limit signs to change seasonally without rhyme nor reason, a tax increase, another photo radar ticket 500 meters down the road, and of course, the most socially distant option, sprawl. Connor McCovid was diagnosed with David this week. Oh, wait, reverse that. This has left many worried about long-lasting impacts of the virus and the recovery period for the NHL's speedster. Said Edmonton czar Daryl Cates, we're really looking forward to a full recovery of our profits and we'll focus less on our star player while we do. Uh, no, wait, reverse that. The news comes as Edmonton crests over 1,000 COVID cases after many residents smugly gloated that they, quote, wouldn't visit Calgary early on in the pandemic. A spokesperson for Alberta's southern team, the Flames, could only shrug, commenting, These are unprecedented times, and a lot of things are reversed. The only thing that is normal is the frequency with which the Oilers are in contention for the Cup. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode is brought to you by The Shared Mic. The hectic pace of modern life makes it difficult to take the time to truly connect with other people. The Shared Mic, Conversations for the Ages, is a podcast by age-friendly Edmonton that's creating human connections, one episode at a time. In this interview-style podcast, Edmontonians from different generations and backgrounds meet to discuss topics that matter to them. It's been a successful social experiment because so far, everyone has been able to find something in common. Season 2 is out now and offers a fantastic selection of topics, including cultivating friendships, building careers, exploring virtual theater, volunteerism, and more. The Shared Mic, as all the podcasts we plug, is available wherever podcasts are sold and is brought to you by the Edmonton Seniors Coordinating Council and the City of Edmonton. Smack, that was a really interesting trick we did in the rapid fire work. I read one, you read three, and somehow the middle one still got read. Yeah, it wasn't done by me. Welcome, Emily, to the podcast. 
<laughs> Thank you. Hello. So who's Emily? Well, that's a great question. Who's Emily? <laughs> I feel like this is a like job interview gone bad. I am an Edmonton journalist. I have been in Edmonton for the last three and a half years or so. And I've spent uh, the majority of that time working for CBC. And the last year and a half, a little bit more than that, I've done some freelance work for Taproot Edmonton, editing the majority of the roundups and writing the now defunct music roundup or now merged with the arts roundup music roundup. And I have been working for Taproot Edmonton now as the new managing editor for the last, I think this is the end of my third week, which is hard to believe, but um, it's been very exciting and lots of lots of exciting projects in the works. So I'm excited to be on board. So Mac, how did you decide that the time was right now to make the first Taproot hire? And why Emily? Not to presume with her on the podcast that, you know, it's a good thing, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, Emily, why Emily's because Emily's fantastic. We're so glad to have her on the team. Uh, we have lots of work to do, Karen and I. Uh, we've been a a two-person show for quite a while now, in addition to the, the you know the very talented freelancers that we work with. Um, it's been Karen and I working full-time, and uh, we have ambitions, I suppose, for the company. Uh, we have a lot of projects that we'd like to see through, and we really want to have the kind of impact that we originally set out to have when we started the company. It became very obvious that um, we couldn't do it all ourselves. And we would definitely need to be bringing in some additional help. And uh, our revenues were growing. And so it made it financially feasible as well uh, for us to expand the team. And so we, we've been thinking about that for a while now. I think we started talking uh, about that with Emily quite a while ago. And it took a little while to make it happen, uh, partly because of the pandemic and stuff. But uh, we're very glad to have her on the team. And yes, I agree. It's hard to believe it's only been three weeks because she's having a, a very big impact already. You talked about the things you'd like to make happen and the impact you'd like Taproot to have. What is that impact? What What is the dream? What's the goal? If you could make anything happen, what would Taproot be doing? Our mission is to help people understand their community better. And so there's lots of different ways that we can do that. But of course, we use the tools of journalism to do that work. We see Taproot itself, Taproot Publishing, the company, uh, growing much, much larger. And we see Taproot Edmonton as our first and sort of model community-based uh, news organization. We'd love to be able to see that grow and thrive and serve Edmontonians, provide them with the information they need, um, keep them informed, help them get engaged in their community. All of those things that we see are good about journalism, You know, serving as sort of the connective tissue uh, for the community. And then ideally be able to replicate that to other places because Edmonton isn't the only city, obviously, that is facing, um, you know, the decline in traditional media. Uh, all major cities are, are facing the same challenge. And if we can work out a really effective and efficient uh, model here, then we'd love to be able to uh, take that to other places and have a positive impact there as well. So Emily, how long did it take you to burn through all the better options before finally settling on Taproot? Well, I'll just cut right to the chase, eh? <laughs> No, I was very, very excited to to join Taproot. I wouldn't say there was a long list of options. It was more of, you know, right opportunity at the right time kind of situation. But I think that a lot of what Mac just said is very, very true in terms of what the reason that I wanted to work with Taproot and, and join Mac and Karen and that I really believe in what they're building. And I think the idea of you know, journalism is a little bit of a scary place to be right now. We've heard so many 
layoff locally and nationally in the last couple of weeks and months and years even. So to have the opportunity to work with um, Taproot, who you know, Mac and Karen are, are working to build the future of local journalism. That's really exciting. And why worry about what's going to happen to the industry when you can be part of building what's next and how journalism and what we create here in Edmonton can be even better than there was before. So I think that, uh, yeah, when that opportunity came up, I mean, I don't know, Troy, <laughs> I guess, I guess they probably you were top of the list and then they moved on to me. So, you know, got to do what you got to do. 102 episodes, the Stockholm Syndrome is strong with me, but I don't know if I'm <laughs> quite at that point yet. Uh, what's the first on the docket? What's your first task? What's your plan for the next month or so? What What are you doing? What's your primary objectives in the upcoming weeks, months, year? So the last couple of weeks, I've been pretty hard at work learning largely from Mac how to uh, write the tech and council roundup. So I think you heard when Mac initially announced that I was coming on board, that I'd be taking over uh, at least the council roundup and then the tech roundup as well. So I've, I've been doing those. I'm also writing the arts roundup for the month while um, Fonda is is off with LitFest and PodFest. And so roundups will still be a large part of my job, writing them and editing them. I'm also going to be working on the people's agenda where we're going to be seeing what Edmontonians want to hear and see in the upcoming municipal election in the fall of 2021. And that will frame a lot of our coverage that I'll be working on. And we also have an exciting project coming up very quickly here, um, a podcast project that you will hopefully be hearing lots more about very soon. So you mentioned you're learning the method and mechanism by which Mac has written the council roundup. And that's always been a bit of an enigma for me because we had Michael Walters on the show last week and he talked about getting up at 5 a.m. every Sunday to read the long list of reports and getting buried in a bunch of hundreds of pages of documents. Do you read all of those every week? How do you actually round up council when there's just this huge dump of information every week? Well, Troy, I don't sleep. I just I just read agendas and sometimes I dream about them. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. Yes, it's a process. I don't know if we can give away the secrets of how the council roundup is written, but essentially, and I don't know if I'm the expert here yet. I think Mac, Mac might be the better person to, to talk about how the council roundup is written at this point, but we do read uh, the agendas and what's coming up for the the upcoming week. And ideally, you know, you're you're familiar enough with council and what's going on and in the flow of that, that you can have a good sense of what is coming up and what might be important, what is going to matter to, you know, a wide range of Edmontonians and uh, be able to encapsulate that in the roundup. And that, you know, ranges from everything from kind of the top headlines from the past week to the actual agenda items that uh, you see in the highlights section. We had an interesting week at council this week. And first up at the docket was the thing that's always first up at the docket, unless we're talking about things that actually get done. And that's ending homelessness. We've had the pledge to end homelessness for time immemorial. And it's been a big tentpole of Don Iverson's mayorship. But we've never really felt like it's truly within grasp. Until, I think for me, recently, where we've been making a lot of pretty significant strides. It's 
the COVID makes anything possible phenomenon. Mac, what happened this week? A lot happened this week, actually. But on Monday, council announced that it was going to tap into $8 million in funds from the feds in the province to try to end chronic homelessness before the end of October. So winter's coming. You know, they know that people can't live outside. And uh, there seems like there's a window of opportunity now to really do something about that. So that was early on in the week. And we've heard, you know, throughout the week, people uh, like Mayor Iveson and others, uh, Councillor Paquette was tweeting about this, lots of members of council talking about how important this is and really kind of keeping the pressure on. And of course, it didn't just start this week, like the mayor over the last month or two has been really aggressive in pushing for federal and provincial support for this, you know, talking about how, uh, as we've talked about on the show before, the price of hotels and apartment buildings is dropping and it might be a good opportunity to swoop in and buy those to use for bridge housing um, and other housing supports. Uh, so, you know, there's been a buildup to this essentially. And then uh, just today or the end of this week, uh, Mayor Don Iveson called on the province to provide just over $17 million to operate um, 600 units of planned supportive housing. You know, the city's announced they're going to basically stand up a city-owned facility. They haven't announced where yet, but they're going to set up a facility to house everybody so that um, people aren't uh, living outside in, in the winter. So it's been a really big push this week uh, to, to try to end chronic homelessness within a month. And I think that's really interesting. I wrote about this on my blog last week that he, we used to talk about ending homelessness in a generation. In 2015... Don Iveson was posting on his campaign blog about ending homelessness within a generation. Uh, when End Poverty Edmonton started happening, obviously that is a is a is a bigger thing uh, than just homelessness. But that was a key part of it. That's what that's what we were talking about a generation. And now all of a sudden, in the last two months, it's become this pledge uh, to end chronic homelessness before November. And that's really a, a big change from where we were. I think we're solving the immediacy of the symptom, but. I do think we probably still have that generational aspect that ending that poverty in a generation has to take a generation. No? Is, is that fair? Well, I think when they use the term chronic, they, they do mean, you know, the folks who are out on the street right now and, you know, are continually in and out of shelters and things like that. So that is definitely, you're right, the push. It's, it's to make sure that the folks who don't have a home right now have a safe and warm place to, to live during the winter. It doesn't mean we're going to solve the overall problem. The root cause is much bigger than uh, than solving that problem. There are thousands more Edmontonians who are very close or at risk of becoming homeless. And that's not what we're talking about solving right now. What the mayor and, and the rest of council is pushing for right now is just making sure that people who are on the streets right now have a place to stay. There's going to need to be some more supports to make sure that nobody else falls into homelessness uh, in the city. It struck me in reading about this this week that when I initially read through it, I saw, oh, there's a letter. We've got $8 million from the feds. The city's putting up their own buildings. We're asking for $17 million from the province. This seems something that's doable. And then I read that it's annual operating funding. We're not just asking for $17 million from the province this year. We're asking for $17 million every year ongoing. And given knowledge of our current provincial government, that put a bit of a damper on my optimism that we're going to get that delivered. Has there been any indication from the province that they're inspired to contribute any of these funds that Don Iveson's asking for? 
Not really. I mean, the read I take, I have on uh, sort of the response is, you know, yeah, sure, thanks, uh, Mayor. We'll read your letter. Uh, but shelter capacity is not at a hundred percent, and we've already put in tens of millions of dollars during the pandemic to uh, to support the more vulnerable people in our community. So the province hasn't exactly been saying, yeah, we're definitely going to do something about that problem. Um, and and we heard obviously in the last episode talking to Councillor Walters that. There's a bit of a jurisdictional push and pull here, right? So council is asking the province for this money. We we have $17 million in the city budget. If we wanted to fund that, we could. But as Walters kind of noted last week, if we do that, that's city money that we'll never get back from the province. So you can kind of see this dance that's being played. The city's going to push as much as they can to try to get that money from the other orders of government so that it doesn't come out of uh, out of their budgets. Um, but so far, at least, I don't see the province as being super on board with this. I mean, they haven't outright said, no, we're not going to fund that, but they've also not been chomping at the bit. You did mention that we do have $17 million in the budget. We could do this as a city. And Iveson has been pretty gung-ho about this, saying he will take all measures possible to end homelessness by late October, early November. Do you think if we don't get buy-in from the province that the city will just kick in $17 million and get this done? Well, of course, it takes more than one person on council to make that decision. It's very true. Um, we would need at least uh, half the councillors and the mayor to decide that. So I'm not sure if that's uh, if that's likely. I know that uh, the mayor will certainly give it everything he's got. And I think it might, to some degree, depend on whether or not he's thinking he's going to run next year. You know, is he is he going to have another four years to try to work on this problem or is he really pushing to try to get it done ahead of time? It might be good to have a bit of a artificial deadline um, to, to sort of light a fire under everyone. So I think it's a possibility. Uh, certainly he's not brought that up currently in any of his communications. He's been pretty uh, sticking to the script in terms of asking uh, the feds in the province for, for funding for this, uh, both, you know, as mayor of Edmonton, but also in his capacity on uh, FCM. And, uh, and that organization has also been pushing the federal government for supports on this. And it resulted in, uh, you know, a big uh, commitment from the federal government in the throne speech to, to doing something about chronic homelessness. I'd speculate in the case where he's not running again, that's also helpful for getting city money contributed because you can pin it on the guy who's not running again. Very true. Don Iveson's not going to be defending himself on the campaign trail. Oh, well, you all voted for this. It's you've solved homelessness. Everyone can agree that's a good thing. And you can pit the bill on the other guy and move on from it. So it does seem like a political win-win from the Councillors who might be a bit reticent to fund $17 million out of council's budget. That's a good point. Yep. The premier's office appears to be full of a bunch of letters from city council, but it sort of goes to show the weakness with which we have to interact with the provincial government. We talked about this before in the Orange Dot episode somewhere in the archives, where council really exists at the behest of the province and we can send as many letters as we like, and we do send a lot of letters. But a letter is just a letter. And like you said, the province doesn't seem to be taking a lot of note about this. One thing the province does seem to be taking a lot of note of is how we are a COVID catastrophe in Edmonton. We have crested, what was it, 1,200 cases today? I know you listened to the uh, presentations both from the province and the city today, Emily. What What's the deal with Edmonton and COVID right now? 
Yeah. So there, there's a lot of COVID. Uh, the Edmonton zone's just over 1250, or I think we're at 1251 as of today. So definitely increasing pretty rapidly. The latest update was the majority of the cases were in the Edmonton zone of that 300 and something new cases. So, so that's not good news. And part of that was that the city uh, of Edmonton and the province have been in talks this week to essentially come up with some new voluntary health measures for the Edmonton zone to try to get things under control. And you can note they are voluntary. And Dr. Hinshaw said today that they're voluntary only because that we have the capacity in hospitals to deal uh, with the amount of COVID. But but she did make a point of that. So obviously take that into consideration. But the new measures were that private gatherings are going to be limited to 15 people. And that doesn't include things like weddings and funerals in the near term. But she did ask that anyone who has a wedding or funeral or um, who goes to a place of worship, et cetera, that, that try to keep numbers as small as possible. And then the second one is that masks should be worn in all indoor work settings if you can't distance yourself appropriately, and that cohorts should be limited to no more than three. So you shouldn't be part of uh, any more than the people you live with, the, the school you go to, and a social cohort or another cohort, like a sport cohort, for example. So those are the new recommended voluntary measures for the zone. And they're hoping that those measures are going to be enough to essentially bring that curve of cases back down. Um, and that so that we stop seeing that spike. But obviously, that's going to be probably hard with Thanksgiving weekend coming up this weekend. And we won't see the impact of you know, people who are getting together over Thanksgiving for another two weeks or so. And Dr. Hinshaw did point out that we don't typically see the impact of the cases and then the impact of those cases and that spike on hospitals until another week or two after that. So really, we're not going to know what, you know, if you get together with your family this weekend or 15 of your closest friends, how that is going to uh, impact things for probably about another three weeks or month, which isn't great news as, as cases continue to go up. Don Iveson definitely talked about that. He said, you know, the city wants to avoid returning to that lockdown that we saw earlier this year because many of those businesses, the ones that did survive, are still trying to recover from the early days of the pandemic. And he told council that that's really what's at stake, that we want to avoid a lockdown because we really can't afford one at this point again. It strikes me when Dr. Hinshaw says things like these measures are voluntary because we have the ICU space. That sort of flies into a lot of the commentary that we've been hearing from public health officials all around the world in the past couple weeks, month, which was that, you know, herd immunity can't happen without a vaccine. If we were to target herd immunity by letting the virus run its course naturally, there would be an irreconcilably large number of people dead or seriously harmed from this virus. But when the CMOH says things like, these measures are voluntary because we have ICU space. Does that not sort of imply that we're just targeting herd immunity as long as we have hospitals that can still cover car crash victims? I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think, I mean, she obviously pointed that out for a reason. She could have just said that it was voluntary and left it at that. Um, I think when you say pointedly that something is voluntary and point that out, doing that is to indicate that really maybe it's a step beyond voluntary and that they're very strongly recommended, which they did say. So I don't know if it's so much about herd immunity because I think they are recommending some pretty 
strict guidelines for for the Edmonton zone at least and you know we could maybe who knows what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks we could maybe even see these extending to other parts of Alberta as well if if things kind of continue in the upswing that we're currently in so, I, I heard her in the news conference say you know essentially that she wants to give Edmontonians a chance mm-hmm. uh, to to do the right thing here and and that's partly why these are are voluntary but I mean, I, I think it might be it might be that she wants to make them mandatory, but she can't. Mm-hmm. It's not her call right now. You know, maybe we would have more strict uh, measures in place if we were back under a provincial emergency and it was her call. It's very it's very confusing. It's very challenging, I think, uh, for anybody. I, I mean, part of my job basically is to keep track of information. Uh, I speak English well and I understand how to interpret what they're saying. And, and even I find it incredibly challenging to follow all of the different guidelines and restrictions. It's 15 here and it's only three cohorts now, but not if you're in school. You can go to a restaurant, but only this many people. You can have 100 people. At a, you know, It's just like way too much information mm-hmm. for any one person to keep straight in their head, right? And I think it makes it really hard to look at these as anything other than kind of a joke, to be honest. I mean, how can you tell me that we can only have private gatherings of 15 people and tell me that we shouldn't have a, a big Thanksgiving dinner, but it's okay for people to go sit in a restaurant for hours on end with people that aren't part of their cohort without masks, like it doesn't make any sense or, you know, the schools are completely open and I get it. It's about the economy, as, as Emily said, like we can't afford to not have these businesses bringing in whatever kind of revenue they can. And schools to be closed means people can't be working because they're doing full time childcare. But it makes it really challenging for anybody who wants to follow the guidelines to reconcile. You're walking around seeing people out in groups and at restaurants and at bars. And, you know, Friday night on my street is completely full of people in and out of the restaurants but you're supposed to only have three cohorts and less than 15. Like, it's just, it's a lot to keep straight, I think. I did see you tweeting about this, Mac, yesterday. And the, you know, I did see people chiming in and saying that it is really hard to keep track of and, and really, you know, how do you sort through all this information? And, and I don't know. And I think, you know, there's the information at the provincial level, but then there's also the information at the city level. And that was one of the things they talked about today as well. And that, you know, the city is going to be taking some further actions in terms of measures to control the spread of COVID. So one of the things that they're doing there is they're going to be, you know, a lot more stringent on enforcing the face covering bylaws. You know, one of the other things that Adam Lachlan said at the news conference was that they're also going to be looking at the special event bookings and facility bookings for the rest of 2020 and maybe scaling those back, looking at making numbers smaller. So, you know, they're definitely taking taking lots of action, both at the city and provincial level. And, and like you said, it's it's hard to keep track of it all. It strikes me as we're back sort of to where we started when we were debating the mandatory mask bylaw and... People were demanding provincial action on this because the province holds all the cards. They control the Public Health Act and all of that. And the city moved forward anyway with the mandatory masks. But we've already seen very high compliance on mandatory masks. That has been the through line in the city discussions that, yeah, people wearing masks in public are doing it pretty frequently and pretty okay. But it comes back to the sort of nonsensical guidelines. One of the things that I've done personally is I hosted movie nights for the past year and a half, stopping before COVID, because I'm like, I can't host a bunch of people in my house watching a movie in close proximity eating popcorn. That that just doesn't make sense with a pandemic. But if you look at the guidelines, 
I totally could. It's totally allowed. Yeah, I'm not going to fit 15 people in my house. Like the rules throughout the whole pandemic have been, oh, we limited gatherings to 50 people. If you have 50 people at a gathering back in March, that's too many. And I get it's balancing the economy, but there has to be some sort of different stipulation for private gatherings. And in this case, the city can't do that. It's the same problem we have with protecting our urban forest. The city can ticket you for messing with trees on public ground, but if you want to clear cut all of the lots in the mature neighborhood, there's not a thing the city is enfranchised to do to stop you. Just like if you are hosting a party in your backyard, the city might be able to give you a noise bylaw ticket, but the province has to be the one that enforces health orders. And we're not seeing that leadership just yet in Edmonton, I don't think. Maybe we need a provincial police force to go and enforce those things. And on that topic, we're just going to move <laughs> right on. Uh, the last topic of the day we want to cover briefly is the solar farm. We've talked about this briefly in the past, but it had a, another update this week. EPCOR uh, was looking to build a solar farm next to its E.L. Smith water plant. Uh, there's been much ado about it because it's roughly 51 acres of solar panels in the River Valley. And we don't historically like development in the River Valley. And especially with solar panels where people say, put them on some roofs somewhere. We got a lot of that. It naturally drew a lot of ire. What was the update this week, Mac? Well, the last time this came forward, it uh, as you say, there were a lot of speakers who were worried about environmental effects, and basically council said, go away, do more consultation, reevaluate. So EPCOR came back, and the updated proposal has a smaller footprint by 18% and expands the wildlife corridor that's seen as part of this by 25%. Uh, since uh, this first came up many, many months ago, it's now got regulatory and environmental approval. Um but the, so they're kind of looking for this uh, this final bit of approval, but not a great deal has changed. I would say. I mean, they've made some minor modifications to the project, but they're essentially still proposing the same thing. We want to build a solar panel uh, farm in the River Valley, and and that's what gets people's back up, right? Because it's potentially seen. Uh, some people see it as taken away from the River Valley right now. This is River Valley space that is, belongs to all Edmontonians, and we shouldn't be building. Uh, things in there. Other people see it as sort of a gateway. If we allow this, what else might we allow? And does that, you know, further erode uh, the pristine river valley uh, that we've got in the city? I, I think for me that what's interesting about this is, you know, there are so many places in the city that we could put solar panels. Look at all the parking lots and the roofs and all the different places where we could. Why does it have to be in the river valley? I'm not necessarily opposed to development in the river valley, especially you know, near the downtown, near Rossdale, I think it would be a good thing if we made it, you know, possible for people to go and enjoy that space. But that's not what a solar farm is going to do. And it does seem like there's lots of other places that we could put it. I get that it probably operationally makes sense to be next to uh, the water treatment plant. You know, it's going to be connected and and that's an important aspect of this. Um, but I can kind of see why people are upset about it. And I, I don't think EPCOR or City Council should be surprised uh, that people have their backs up about a project like this going into the River Valley. One of the justifications that I had seen for this is, you know, there's a transmission loss aspect to solar panels, where if you locate the solar panels further from the site, you know, there's a loss through cabling and it upsets the economics and the value proposition of doing it. The problem I have with that is just, buildings do not exist independently of each other. We have a power grid. If EPCOR decided to build 
the same number of solar panels and just locate them next to a power plant as co-generation, like the same environmental impact is there. You're still offsetting the same amount of electricity, even if the water treatment plant is now pulling from the grid right. instead. So I, I don't see the argument for why would we take this pristine high value land, put a use case that we use airports for and call that a win environmentally. It, it doesn't track for me. And I don't think it was tracking for most of city council either. I didn't hear a lot of raving about, hey, let's, let's do this. Let's build in the River Valley. Right. And I don't believe council's made a decision yet. They may not have, but I've made the decision right now to read an ad. Mac, take it away. ATB has a newish podcast called The Future Of. You can join Todd Hirsch, ATB's vice president and chief economist, as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future. The podcast explores how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. From the future of women in business to the changing nature of work itself, the future of helps us understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get the tomorrow we want. Features two episodes each month, plus bonus episodes, and includes interviews with top community and business leaders from Alberta and around the world. You can subscribe to The Future Of in Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to ask your own questions about the future, you can send an email to thefutureof at atb.com. And thanks, Emily, for helping us both understand and realize the future of Taproot Edmonton. <laughs> See what I did there? Advertiser tie-in. That's brand synergy. Uh, until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Emily. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Except I'm not here next week. <laughs> That's the false advertising. I didn't even get to sign off. <laughs> I was going to say, as you know, as the next up and coming council enthusiast, maybe I'm going to come for one of your co-hosting roles. Who knows?